Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and miniseries. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Mike Stark to discuss his book, Black Sabbath, an oral history. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Mike Stark, the author of Black Sabbath, an oral history. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So tell us about the book. This came out originally in 1998 and came out again in 2022. Yeah, it, it was originally part of a series uh, of oral histories of a lot of different acts, uh, very diverse group of uh, books. And it was uh, edited by the legendary uh, music critic Dave Marsh. And they were all edited by him, and it included George Clinton and Sam and Dave and Leonard Skinner and a very, like I said, diverse group of, of uh, bands. Uh, Dave approached me. I was working at the time at a heavy metal station here in L.A., uh, probably the premier heavy metal station ever, KNAC in Long Beach. And so he felt I had the ability to do a book on heavy metal. I wasn't really a heavy metal guy and I didn't really know that much about Black Sabbath, but I did know that Bill Ward lived locally. So I knew that I could get that interview fairly easily. And so I just took it on. When somebody offers you a book deal and you've never written a book, you go for it. Now, the problem was <laughs> that uh, the history of Black Sabbath, as we'll get into, is so convoluted and so crazy that the first book that was out in 1998 had a bunch of errors in it. They were errors that uh, that I didn't make, but that the copywriters made because they they transcribed Ian Gillen and Ray Gillen and made them the same person. Ooh. And it was just, it was a mess. The, the first edition was a mess. And so I was, I was very upset about that. And I, I contacted the publishers and I said, listen, if we ever do a remake of this, please let us know and we'll make the correct changes and make it right. Well, without my knowledge, when the Osborne uh, TV show started, they did a second printing of it with a different cover and the whole thing, but they didn't they didn't contact me to make any changes. So it came out in a second edition with all the wrong stuff in it. So at that point, I was just kind of fed up with it. Then recently, in the last couple of years, Genius Publishing, who this is a great publishing company, they they got with me and said, listen, 
we'll let you do uh, the book and we'll let you expand it a little and we'll make all the corrections. And they put together a really beautiful uh, book, I think. And, and it, it's, so that's where we are today. And it's just an illustration that the history of Black Sabbath is very, very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Even the history of the book is complicated. Yes, yes. And um, you, you made a point in the introduction of the book that A, Black Sabbath are the inventors of heavy metal music. And so retrospectively, they've taken on this aura, you know, one of the great immortal rock bands, massively influential on, on subsequent generations. And there's not a lot of pushback about their critical standing anymore. But that was not the case in the 1970s and 1980s. What was the initial response of the rock and roll cognoscenti to Black Sabbath? I don't. I think they just didn't know what what they were about. To be honest with you, I think that they uh, they had never heard anything quite like it. Uh, you'll still get arguments today as to whether they were the original uh, heavy metal band. I will argue to the end of time that they were the creators of heavy metal because they were the first ones that really put out an, a complete album of the genre. Deep Purple is always in the argument, but they, they were pretty straight ahead rock and roll when you come right down to it, a lot of their earlier stuff. And Black Sabbath was was the first band that had a complete uh, heavy metal feel to it. And as my original editor uh, of the book said, Dave Marsh has always talked about heavy metal as being like sumo wrestlers, you know, where they're pouncing back and forth, back and forth before they make the attack. And that sort of it, it signifies the sound of heavy metal and Black Sabbath was always sort of that way. Yeah, they're definitely thundering. Um, you also point out that the music press post Woodstock was busy ignoring Altamont, the Isle of Wight, which was a big music festival in the aftermath of Woodstock, and the Manson family. So Altamont and Isle of Wight are both music festivals that were perceived to be disastrous. Altamont clearly was. I mean, multiple, you know, at least one person was murdered and multiple people were killed in, in car crashes there, and it was just a miserable right. experience for everyone. Isle of Wight was also a pretty miserable experience or it was made to look so in the documentary the the director of the film actually said he could have made the same movie about woodstock had he edited it um, oh, okay <laughs> with, with a similar view but yeah i mean isle of white can be quite scary you've got hippies talking about giving uh, lsd doses to babies and and you know things like that you really see what's going on in the mud and filth of the crowd but the manson family was obviously a aspiring musical group who committed several ghastly murders in the Los right. Angeles area. Why did you pick those three things as the well, as the downers that, that the music press is ignoring in the period Black Sabbath emerged? Well, I think I think those were the dark, dark aspects of the times. Um, the Manson family, of course, is obvious. The Isle of Wight, you know, you're right. It wasn't really... Uh, as horrible a show as as maybe was portrayed in the film, but it was a time when corporate uh, entities sort of took over, and it was more uh, pop music became more of a money making thing. Woodstock really started that in a way. You know, the corporate people looked at Woodstock and said, "Hey, there's money to be made here," and from from that point on, 
things started to change corporately, I think, and and music became more corporate in general. And the Isle of Wight was uh, kind of an example of that because the people were mad about, you know, having to spend so much money and not getting what they felt they they deserved. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. And and Sabbath, for whatever reason, became the Lexus point of that negativity is associated with rock music, although there was a younger generation, and a lot of people split the baby boom into two sets, and the second cohort of baby boomers loved Black Sabbath. That seems to be um, the big difference, is the older cohort of of boomers did not like Black Sabbath, and they were the ones who wrote all the magazine articles, who hosted the radio shows, who worked in the business, and so my impression is that there's just this there was a feeling as if the great unwashed hordes of 14 year olds had emerged in giant masses, swilling cheap wine and taking quaaludes and going to Black Sabbath concerts. I, I think you nailed it there, uh, because I probably would consider myself part of that early boomer generation because I grew up in what many people think is the renaissance of all music, you know, like 65 through 70. There was so much going on in that period. And then, so there was that set of boomers. And then there was, like you said, the Sabbath came along and and there was a whole new boomer audience who was kind of rejecting all of that other stuff. And uh, I think that's where Sabbath came, came, came to power. Absolutely. And let's hear a little bit of Sabbath. This is Black Sabbath, the title song of their first album and the song the band was named for. Uh, references Migorsky's Planet Suite, the Mars uh, uh, episode in specific. And this is where heavy metal starts. It's got it all, the gothic imagery, the classical musical illusions, and the heavy blues rock framework with Les Pauls or Gibson SGs and Marshall Amps. was Black Sabbath's titular song, which is where a lot of people first heard the Banshee Wails of Ozzy Osbourne. You refer to him that way several times. What is it about Ozzy's singing that was so novel and unique at the time? And it's still pretty unique. Oh, yeah, it's very unique. You know, it's not uh, it's not a traditionally trained music voice. That is for sure. And it, it just fit that music for some reason, you know, and, and I, I came, I came up with the idea that he was a banshee because, you know, it was like a howling banshee, uh, in a lot of respects in the, in, especially in the song you just played, there's a lot of, of that imagery in that, in that particular tune. Yeah. It's, it's the sound of a man screaming in fear. And when you hear the thunder, what do you call Tony Iommi, uh, Geezer Butler and Bill Ward, the thunder behind Ozzy, which makes the audience seem impotent. I thought that was interesting mm. imagery there. What was it about their assault that seemed to just 
stupefy audiences. You know, I, I can't, I can't really put my, my finger on it. I, I've, I got to see them twice. I saw them at the California jam, which was a big gig gig for them. And, and then I saw them later in the, in, in one of the reunions and, uh, they certainly captivated the audience and, uh, you know, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what it is, but it, it was all the elements, uh, the four of them together, you know, all the other, uh, all the other things that Sabbath did over the years with other band members that came in and out of the band, nothing matched that original four in terms of uh, it being a cohesive work and a cohesive sound. I don't think. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know you spend a little section at the front of the book running through the various lineups, and from January of '69 to September '77, it's just set. It's the foursome. Yeah. And, you know, Ozzy, Tony, Geezer and Bill. And it's set. And that is when they did the bulk of their work um, that, that they're remembered for. There's right. another second period, though, in uh, late 79 or spring 79, when Ronnie James Dio, then the singer of, of Richie Blackmore's Rainbow, comes in. Ozzy's given the boot. They have two very successful albums with the man you call The Sorcerer. Talk about Ronnie James Dio and how he revitalized Black Sabbath a little bit in the late what? 70s. Well, you know, they took they took the basic sound that they had and they added a different voice to it. And I think a smarter voice to it as well, because Geezer uh, didn't write as much of the lyrics at that point, because Ronnie was a really great lyricist. And it just changed it changed the makeup. And I agree if if there's two uh, if there's two times that are important in the Black Sabbath history. It's the Ozzy period and the Ronnie James Dio period. And Ronnie comes back later, Ozzy comes back later. But those those are the two areas that are, are the most prolific in, in terms of what was turned out. And Heaven and Hell is a really, really great album. There's no getting around it. It's just a, a classic album in in every way. And Ronnie Ronnie brought that to the table. But with the departure of Ozzy, I fortunately did a lot of the interviews. I didn't do any interviews for the book with Ozzy or Geezer or Tony, but I did hours of interviews with Bill. And I did a few hours of interviews with Ronnie. And um, it was interesting that Bill Bill's decline came when Ronnie came in because Bill felt that uh, he was partially responsible for the demise of Ozzy because he ended up being the one that had to had to kind of tell Ozzy he was out. And so that sent him on a downward spiral. And then, you know, he lasted an album and a half or so with uh, the Dio lineup. And then he was he was in in big trouble from that point on. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that, you know, your book and several other things, Bill has become much more of a storyteller for the band in yeah. the last couple decades, which was not the case in the seventies and eighties, his lifestyle in that period precluded him from talking. And so the band had almost this vibe of as if they were idiot savants, um, mm -hmm. you know, Ozzy's infamously inarticulate. Tony Ayami has never wanted to talk to the press. He's probably got the reputation for being the, the most 
shrewd, the shrewdest member of Black Sabbath. But Geezer Butler was the lyricist and one that you would kind of expect to step into that sort of Pete Townsend or Brian Jones, you know, intellectual right. spokesman of the band role. But never he never did. Never no. did. And, and never did. You know, really, I think that contributed to this notion, which is totally mistaken. If you listen to the music, it should be obvious. These are very intelligent people. But in the in my childhood, in the 70s and 80s, they were really regarded as as mouth breathing, knuckle dragging goons. I mean, and, and <laughs> you know, drug addicts are the worst sort. And the people who listened to them were, were painted with that brush, which was everybody in my elementary school. You know, yeah, I mean, right, right. We, we all, you know, universally love Black Sabbath, but the the world around us did not. And the rest of their their lineup changes. I mean, they have these two big periods of stability, or you know, one big period of stability, and then this Ronnie James Dio kind of comes through like a comet and puts out two very successful albums. You mentioned Heaven and Hell, but Mob Rules also got, got to give a shout out. Yeah, I mean, true. I remember, you know, very much. I was in middle school at that time, and heavy metal to us boiled down to like Van Halen, ACDC, Black Sabbath with Ronnie James Dio, Ozzy with Randy Rhodes. That was a big rivalry mm-hmm. for, for two, three years. I remember yeah. constantly dominating the conversation that, you know, we'd go to the 7-Eleven and buy cream and circus magazine. And <laughs> and then we would read what Ozzy had said about them. And, 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 um, you know, there were very few quotes back, but Ozzy was trashing them in the press right. pretty aggressively at the time. But then there's a whole decade and a half of kind of lost in the wilderness um, where they, they replaced Ronnie James Dio with Ian Gillian of Deep Purple. That's pretty much regarded universally as, as a, a mistaken idea. The Born Born Again album uh, yeah, landed, flopped pretty hard. I, I think maybe it was better than it was seen at the time. But then there's a full decade of, of basically the band boiling down to just Tony Iommi. Iommi. Yeah. Yeah, and then, and then and then there's these revivals in the '90s. They get they get back with with Ronnie James Dio in the early right. '90s, but within a year um, that ends in November '92 because Ozzy uh, wants to do a retirement show and get the original lineup back together. Uh, Ronnie James won't open for those shows and and they quit. And then there's like a five six year period in the '90s where they're reunited with Ozzy. Various lineup changes in that period, and then. A second period with Ronnie James Dio from 26, 2006 to 2010 when he passed away. So, right. so they they kind of got to have you know the lucrative and, and glorious reunion tours with with both singers and and put a bow on it. But why was the Ronnie James Dio era so short? Actually, wait, I've got a cue again. Steph's I'm in trouble with Steph. This is a <laughs> second Black Sabbath song, Snowblind, from their album Volume Four. This is Snowblind, uh, the song that the band wanted to title their uh, their fourth album, Volume Four, but the record company wouldn't go for it because they knew what it meant, and it was obvious the band was Snowblind in, in that particular <laughs> uh, time in history. But back to Ryan James Dio, why did they so abruptly fire him? I mean, the book nobody really cops to what happened. 
In, in terms of what? Of getting rid of Ronnie James Dio after Mob Rules. I, I think it was kind of a mutual thing. I think Ronnie was uh, felt like his hands were somewhat tied based on my conversations with him when I had. And, you know, he he was a talented guy and, and he wasn't going to be restrained by, you know, any nonsense. And sometimes Sabbath produced a lot of nonsense. Let's let's be honest. And, and he wasn't a drugger. Ronnie was not a drug user, and and that probably had a, a lot to do with it as well. It's hard to say, but I, I never got the uh, impression that Ronnie was booted out. I think there was that situation where uh, Ozzy wanted to come in back into the band, and Ronnie was still in the band, and there was some tension there. And I think Ronnie just said, you know, I I've had enough of this. Perfectly reasonable decision when things are going on like Bill Ward flipping out and um, um, right. you know missing major gigs uh, to the to the extent that, that you know they had to get Vinny a, a piece and and um, reconvene uh, you know a band with four days of rehearsal to play Hawaii gigs so they wouldn't be completely bankrupted and, and go destitute. So yeah, it's easy to see why Ronnie James was frustrated with him. And and Steph wanted me to explain what snowblind means. It means you're doing too much cocaine is what snowblind <laughs> means. <laughs> and that's that's what, it, what it that's what it means. <laughs> yeah, and the band the band definitely had that. But let's go back to the beginnings. Uh you know, the original foursome came from Birmingham, England, which is right, you know, a town that's pretty storied in beat music history. They they were the the birthplace of the Moody Blues. And then later, the birthplace of the move from which Roy Wood and um, Wizard and then later Jeff Lynne and Electric Light Orchestra all came out of, of, of that group. Right. But Black Sabbath is a very different beast. Both Moody Blues and the move kind of blended in with the general movement of English beat groups sure. in the 60s. Black Sabbath... You know, even as much as they come right on the heels of Cream, Hendrix, the Jeff Beck group, and even right on the heels of Led Zeppelin, like you say, there was something different that was darker, more malevolent, and more alienating to, to older um, fans and critics that, that pick people off. But what was it? Was there something in their backgrounds that was different than previous rock stars out of Birmingham, or was it just a slightly different, rougher era? I think that uh, they adapted to what Birmingham was more about than those other bands that you mentioned. It was a dark city. It was an industrial city. It had been bombed out during the war. It was kind of a, a just a dark city in general. So I think they came from those roots and they put those roots into their music. That's the impression I got in talking with Bill. Yeah, I think I think that's definitely the consensus. And their you know their childhoods, particularly Ozzy's, were pretty deprived. I mean, Ozzy Ozzy yes. had an extremely rough uh, material conditions, and the others were Tony and Ayami in particular was kind of a, a local tough that Ozzy was afraid of. And, right. And and, uh, and Ozzy was a known character, although not necessarily a childhood friend of any of the other three, but they were all aware of him sure. when he when he auditioned. For the band, talk a little bit about what they were like when they first came together and what their primordial stages were before they coalesced into what we know as Black Sabbath. Well, I think they were much more blues oriented uh, in those original uh, days. You know, that that was more their roots. And I know for a fact that Bill was very jazz oriented. And I think that 
shows throughout the history of the band with Bill Bill's playing. It always has sort of a jazz element to it. And when you brought in those other rock drummers to uh, uh, fill in for him and all those con- different configurations, that jazz element was sort of lost. There was there was it was it was back to being a straight rock band. Bill added that jazz element to it as well. But I think in the early days, they were all pretty blues based in their approach to the music. Yeah, absolutely. And they were called Earth and and uh, yes. was trying trying to fit into what they call the British blues revival, which was basically led by Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac. But, right. uh, you know, the Groundhogs were big in that scene. Chicken Shack, uh, the Savoy uh, Blues Band 10 years after. So it was a big scene kind of dominating the underground clubs in England. And they were they were on the periphery of that, but they never quite fit in. And and um, they they hook up with this guy, Jim Simpson, who's a local um, club owner and proprietor and he's got a relationship with this dj tony hall at radio luxembourg mm-hmm. and and manages to get some of their early demos played and they hook up with vertigo records and really i mean from the moment they name themselves rename themselves black sabbath and get this connection with vertigo it, it's not long at all until they're massively successful tell us a little bit about that kind of hitch to a rocket experience that they had well, and that I think that led to their downfall because uh, they they it was a they took off like a rocket once Vertigo released the records, and they put them on the road immediately, and they were just road dogs for for most of that period that we talked about, which is several years. Bill referred to uh, we were going through some pictures of Sabbath. And Bill looked at one picture from that period and he said, ah, we've got those uh, Beatles, uh, Beatles for sale eyes, I think is how he put it. And he said, he said the Beatles had been when they made the album Beatles for sale, the Beatles had gone through that, that rocket tour roller coaster. And when they took the picture for that record, you could tell they were all tired. And and I think that happened to Sabbath even more because you had the drugs and, and the debauchery to that, and it just made it worse. Yeah, absolutely. The Beatles were doing a little bit of Prelude and, uh, and Scotch and Coke, but, and, right. and, you know, and, and by all accounts were pretty off the chain with the, the groupies. But by the early 70s, the whole world had changed around bands. And so, yeah. you know, the groupies True. were coming after the bands by that point, and And the, <laughs> so were the drug dealers. And yeah, Sabbath, Sabbath just sort of disappears into this whirlpool. You know, they, they'd had this period of gigging around Birmingham. Nobody wanted to know about them. Uh, they even managed to get them gigs at the Star Club, which is, right. you know, it's, it's funny that you think of Black Sabbath as the Sue Generis comes out of nowhere band, but they were actually all massive Beatles fans. Yes. And, and, and were really uh, patterning their career as much as they could on the Beatles, which, you know, is, has been the road to ruin for so many. And, and it was a successful road for Black Sabbath, although not one, you know, you don't see the fingerprints. It's not like the knack where you go, oh, they're trying to be the Beatles. Nobody ever said that. <laughs> Nobody said that about Sabbath. You're right. You're absolutely right. 
<laughs> but but uh but yeah but seen internally especially i imagine when they were playing the star club in the, in the late 60s they must have really felt like they were walking in the, in the in the footprints of their heroes but let's take a quick break hear from our sponsor and talk about their initial classic album run Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And so the local operator, Jim Simpson, had managed to get them uh, opportunities in Europe, which led to uh, radio play, which led to their signing with Vertigo Records and then signing with the Warner Brothers conglomerate for their United States release. Massively successful, but as bands do, he's pretty much immediately fired and replaced by a guy named Patrick Meehan. What was the trade-off there, and did the band come to regret it? Well, I... You know, in talking to Bill, he didn't he didn't get into much with in terms of the management. He he never really Bill Bill in his older age was a very is a very gentle guy, a very soft guy, unlike what he was back then. And he he is very hesitant to speak badly about anybody that even did him wrong. And and I sense that there both of those guys were problems in terms of, I mean, it, it's st- typical stereotypical management at that time where they melt them dry basically. And, um, but in, in terms of specifics, I can't really say what 
specifically went wrong in either case. Yeah, I mean, the impression I've gotten from this, from your book and then other documentaries and interviews was that Jim Simpson was just sort of your classic early stage manager that <laughs> didn't quite have the big time professional connections, didn't have the big limo, for example. And Patrick Meehan was somebody who was able to put up a much bigger front and make big promises about big money. He did hook him up with some bigger tours. Um, but in the end, does things like release the We Sold Our Souls for Rock and Roll compilation right. without any communication with the band. And they don't, you know, there were allegations that lots of money was misappropriated. There were some ugly lawsuits that went on for quite a while in the late 70s um, and resulted in the separation of Patrick Meehan from the band. So, yeah, it's it's hard to know. You know, the I think a lot of it got buried um behind non-disclosure agreements and lawsuits, but, but <laughs> <laughs> which is not how you want a business relationship to end. But tell us about this period of kind of album tour, album tour, album tour. What was it like for the band when they went to places like Corpus Christi, Texas? Was Corpus Christi, Texas ready for blacks? No, no, they weren't. And, and you know, every uh, evangelical preacher was out ready to have them strung up. Uh, it it it, would, it got pretty ugly from from what Bill had told me about uh, those times. Uh, you know, they didn't know what to make of Black Sabbath. And Black Sabbath was nowhere near as evil as they were perceived. Uh, they were they were regular, you know, they were teenagers or or slightly older than teenagers. And they were just riding this wave of, of music that they'd done. I don't I don't know how they were able to handle that, you know, that that hate that that they were faced in a lot of places, along with all the love that they were faced by the fans, which was, you know, that that must have been an interesting uh, uh, dichotomy of 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 feelings towards that band. Yeah, absolutely. And as, having been one of those fans in a small Texas, extremely religious town, you felt like you were under siege at all times and that and that bands like this spoke to you as an outsider. And when they mm. would come to town, you know, all the metalheads would gather, gathering of the tribes, and you would walk past the Christians that were protesting outside and, and you know, maybe exchange some ugly words or whatever. But frequently those people would be your sister, you know, your older brother, maybe some of your wow. friends who switched back and forth. You know, maybe yeah. Jimmy was into metal on Saturday, but on Sunday morning he had to go to church with his family and, and you know, put on his button-down shirt and maybe get a haircut. And, you well, know, so. then you, you probably have a better feel for that than even the band had, I would think, having grown up in that in that atmosphere. Yeah, it's it, uh, coming from England, which at the time, you know, this was the England of John Lennon's "We're Bigger Than Jesus," which was a quantifiably true statement in the 19, in 1965 when he said that in England in 1965 the Beatles were more popular with teenage kids right. than 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 Jesus Christ and Christianity. That's just a fact. You right. Know, study after study bears that out. You know, compared church attendance with album sales. And it wasn't even a close contest. Um, but in America, it was a different story. The fundamentalist religious belts, through, you know, down through the Appalachians, the Scots-Irish belt, held on to that religiosity in a way that the that the British hadn't since the days of the Puritans. And and right, yeah, it must have been a complete shock uh, to these guys from Birmingham who who 
had no experience of that kind of, um, you know, fervent religious loyalty uh, that that was going around in the 70s. And it was also a period of rumor. Um, there was no Internet and there was very little TV coverage of rock bands. Uh, that was a combination of TV not being comfortable with bands like Black Sabbath and, and Led right. Zeppelin. And also those bands not seeing any utility in marketing themselves on television. TV was for, you know, uh, the people who sang Afternoon Delight, you know, the, 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 that, exactly. kind of, that kind of stuff. And, and you just did not, you know, heavy metal and television uh, rarely met. And so there was, you know, in the 60s, you would have like a standard newspaper, like the Washington Post would would have a rock music reporter or, who would interview, you know, the bands playing the big shows in D.C., by the 70s, that's pretty much gone. And you just didn't get conventional press coverage of rock bands. There was no internet. There wasn't even a fanzine scene really yet. So these rumors just propagated everywhere. And, and yeah. you know, and, and, and Black Sabbath was certainly <laughs> at the center of many of them. Ozzy's solo career probably got even more ridiculous rumors but talk sure. a little bit about the, the devil the devil devil worshipers yes yes they're constantly called devil worshipers even though the iconography of the band was always christian crosses and they the stories Absolutely. They, yeah tell us a little bit like what were their stories they were telling in their songs were they speaking from the vantage point of devil worshipers or they were speaking from the vantage point of somebody who's frightened by devil worship. I think the the latter, obviously. And, and, you know, they talk about the making of the song Black Sabbath. The idea was to try and scare people. That was that was what they were trying to get across in the song. There wasn't anything much deeper than that. It was just uh, it was a new way of uh, entertaining people. People love to be scared, as as Geezer said when he wrote that song. And, you know, and, and then they 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 saw the film Black Sabbath that was playing at a theater across the street. And they said, well, you know, that kind of matches what's going on. And and so it was about, you know, a different feel to music than than just peace and love <laughs> yeah absolutely and this was a very dark period for horror movies or successful period for horror movies you had sure uh you know it was kind of framed by rosemary's baby in 68 and the exorcist in 71 the whole you know kind of the classic period of black sabbath uh you but you had tons of other movies the omen the sentinel sure uh you know the changeling etc cetera, etc cetera. but pretty a-level movies. You you tended to have one or two uh, aging Hollywood A-list stars in, in these movies, and they were frequently directed by top directors like Roman Polanski. And and and, but there was a certain legitimacy to the movies. You know, even though Roman Polanski's life was tragically all tied up with the Manson family and his own criminal conduct, right. His reputation, nonetheless, in the '70s was glamorous rather than sinister. Whereas Black Sabbath. They were treated as if they were the massive family. Wow, that, you know, I never thought about that, but you're absolutely right. Uh, Hollywood movies were never painted that way. You know, they were never painted. You very seldom saw protests in front of movie theaters about uh, about the movies that were out. Yeah, and and the movies were, you know, something like Rosemary's Baby or The Exorcist promulgated Satanism to many more people than than any Black Sabbath record ever did. Absolutely. <laughs> very, very vividly. But let's go ahead and hear our next song. This is uh, Sabbath's Bloody Sabbath from the album of the same name.
And that was Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, the title track of Black Sabbath's fifth album. And tell us a little bit about about their early albums. You know, you've got you've got Black Sabbath, then you've got Paranoid, Master of Reality, and Volume Four. Those four albums are kind of seen as a set, even though there's dramatic musical progression uh, from the end to the beginning. But then Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath is sometimes seen as where things started to go wrong. Where yeah. Too much production was added. What was the dynamic with the band and their and their work in this period? Well, I think again, I think they were getting tired because they were continuously on the road. You know, that Sabbath Bloody Sabbath was released in 73. So they'd been on the road since they started in, you know, 1970 roughly, probably a little bit before that. Even 68, really, I think Yeah. Touring Ex- exactly. So so by that point Things were wearing thin, and uh, you know, then then the albums that followed that up until the Ronnie James Dio period were all good albums, but they were not. They did not match, you know, the first two. When you really think about it, the first two are the ones that uh, really. And first three, actually. Now yeah, I got I got to pipe up for Master. Yeah, Reality. that's probably yeah. my favorite. <laughs> the first three are are huge, and and you know even the the, the volume four is in that in that ballpark as well, but you know those four albums. Once you put out those four albums, boy, that's hard to top, you know. And and then you add the drugs and the uh, constant touring and all of that, and it, it can't have a good ending. Yeah, I, I distinctly remember my my uh, youngest older brother was nine years older than me, and he would have to babysit me on Friday nights. And frequently, <laughs> his Friday night babysitting would turn into him hosting a record party for him and his friends. And I remember every new Sabbath album from Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, up through Technical Ecstasy being excitedly unwrapped at one of these Friday night listening parties, and every one of them getting a pan like that, that, mm. you know, and the disappointment getting bigger and bigger each time. Yeah. So that by the time, you know, I never say die came out, they were pretty much were expecting to hate the record, even though they love Black Sabbath. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and sure enough, that's hilarious. They, they did. But then, you know, and in technical ecstasy, I can remember um, even a big debate between my brother and his best friend as to whether or not they should even buy the record or, or just, you know. <laughs> <laughs> leave, it, leave it at the store. And, you know, there's this period where they tour with uh, uh, Van Halen and, and Van Halen's just absolutely at the peak of their powers and they're just getting blown away. There's another story. I can't remember where I read it. Uh, I think in Mick Wall's Black Sabbath book where they spent an entire two days rewriting Aerosmith's Back in the Saddle or Sweet Emotion. I can't remember one of those, but, you know, just these kind of amateur hour moves as if they're the trogs or something where they're not in control of their powers at all. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, and we talked a little bit about Ronnie James Dio coming in and reviving the band for a couple of years, but let's, let's wrap with um, talking about these, these final years and, and what, what, what happened when they actually um, did replace Ozzy with James Dio. Like, like they, they've gotten rid of Patrick Meehan, but then, then they hire Sandy Perlman, who's the famous for the manager and producer of Blue Oyster Cult, and go on the Black and Blue tour. How did that work out for the band working with Sandy Perlman as their manager on the tour with his other band? Now you're talking uh, what years again? This was now? eighty. This is eighty. This is right after Heaven and Hell. This was the big tour they do. They okay. tour Europe with Ronnie James Dio. It goes great because he's 
huge from Rainbow, and they were still big. But then they toured the States with the Black and Blue Tour with Boys for Cult, and uh, it's pretty disastrous. Well, I think the heavy metal scene also was changing at that point. I was, uh, that was like in the mid 80s, right? Early 80s. Early Early 80s. You know, heavy metal, uh, especially in Los Angeles, was changing almost, it wasn't even recognizable as heavy metal. But it was considered heavy metal. You know, the the Sunset Strip scene became huge in the mid 80s. And uh, I think I think that added to the problems. And and honestly, I, I Bill wasn't very active at that point. In fact, he was basically homeless at that point. So what I got from Bill was very little in terms of what went on at that, in that period of time. It was a, it was a, it was a lost period for him. And again, I didn't speak to the other members of the band during that, for that period. So I I don't, I can't really speak to that. One thing that was interesting to me and the things that Bill did say in the book was there was a recurring pattern where all three of the ones that had struggles, which is, which is Ozzy, Geezer and Bill, had lost their parents around that time so Mm. that it was it was as much as the drugs and money struggles that they're having personally and then with their management they were also dealing with family obligations and just the normal kind of grief that people in their late 20s who lose parents in their 50s or 60s you know often go through and that um that kind of humanized them for me a, a little bit and and you felt kind of the weight of obligation and and their lives in this and and you know, they must have all been absent from their from their family um, enormous amounts of time. Yeah, I do. Story. I do know that Bill uh, took his mother's loss very, very strongly. And it was shortly after that, that he had trouble flying on airplanes. And, you know, it, it was a downward spiral at that point. And it was it was it was it was sad to see. And, and you know, I got to see Bill after that and get to know him a little bit after that. And, and it, it really made me feel good that he was able to pull himself out of that because he was basically homeless at one point, literally homeless on the streets of Seal Beach, California. He told me that, uh, you know, he said that his, his phone was the pay phone at the end of the Seal Beach Pier. God. You know, that was where if the people wanted to reach him, that's where he, they, they could reach him. So, you know, it was a downward spiral. And, and for him to come out of that is just amazing to me. Yeah, it really is. And even Ozzy was close to homeless. I don't know that he was ever homeless, but I do know that he was in like a, one of those classic LA flop houses where he could rent a room, you know, for $10 a day um, or, or something like that. You know, the classic sort of place where a sure. gangster ends up at the end of the movie, you know, like just <laughs> down and out, just a, a brutal, a brutal period. But let's go ahead and hear a little bit of Sabbath with Ronnie James Dio. This is Children of the Sea from the classic Heaven and Hell album.
And that was Ronnie James Dio with Children of the Sea, uh, which is the first song that he rehearsed with Black Sabbath. He'd been talking about, with Tony Ayami for a couple of years about forming something, and it had never gotten past the talk phase. But then it, after uh, the Van Halen tour, when Ozzy, uh, Ozzy's alcoholism and behavior was really uh, pushing the band to the breaking point, they also just weren't musically clicking. They invited Ronnie James Dio to, to rehearse with the full trio of the Ozzy I'm not Ozzy, but the Tony Geezer and Bill trio, right. and um, and things immediately click, and and you can tell from the way you know, Ronnie James talks about it that he was immediately in there making suggestions, rewriting the song, and creating something that was greater than the sum of their parts. But one of Bill's, and frustration is even the wrong term, but one of Bill's concerns with Ronnie James Dio was that Ronnie kind of meant some of the stuff in a way that Ozzy and the band hadn't before and things like Lady Evil Bill felt kind of ruined the spell it was actually you know siding with the devil as it were what's your right. take on that you call Ronnie James the sorcerer do you feel well, like he was playing it a little more seriously than Ozzy had I think that it, I think it was all imagery I don't uh, having having sat down with Ronnie face to face and interviewed him for a couple hours uh you know, it's all showbiz. And Ronnie was totally a showbiz guy. And I, you know, I don't know that there was any, any heart to those, those things. He was, he was, he was, you know, the equivalent of making a video game into music. You know, he, 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 he had none of those feelings. It was just an entertainment thing. Uh, you know, if you look at Ronnie's, uh, background. He started out in doo-wop music, if you can believe that, and and his early music was was very pop oriented, and he was he was an entertainer, and I think that uh, he took it seriously. He didn't do the drugs. He didn't do the uh, alcohol. He was he very straight ahead when it came to performing, and he did that in everything that he that he did. I remember going to. Uh, uh, some heavy metal conventions when I was at the radio station and they would have uh, meet and greets with the, with the artist and Ronnie would, would meet and greet for hours. He, he, nothing would stop him from meeting his fans and he would, he would stay there until the very last fan was taken care of. He was an entertainer to the utmost and the other stuff was just distractions to him. And I think at the end, end of the day, that was, that was the oil and water of why he didn't stick around. Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair assessment, but it is interesting that Bill took it, took Ronnie's stuff more seriously than he had taken. I think some of that was Bill was so close to Geezer and Geezer had written so many of the lyrics. Yes. Uh, You know, Geezer and Ozzy had an odd relationship in that Geezer would tend to write the lyrics and Ozzy would write the melodies and they would uh, come together uh, with that, but Ronnie James Dio did did all of that stuff. So, um, any final words about the last years of Black Sabbath? How do you see the, those final reunion tours with Ozzy and then back with Ronnie James? Uh, two words: Sharon Osbourne. <laughs> yep. You know uh, what can you say? I guess she kept Ozzy on track, and that there's a lot to be said for that. But. Uh, I was with Bill. Bill and I did a radio show together for many, many years, uh, a monthly radio show. And um, Sharon treated Bill 
horribly, to be quite honest with you. And 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 you could see it. It was it was taking its toll on Bill, who again didn't want to say bad things about anybody at that point in his life. He was blessed that he was still alive, I think, and that he was still able to be creative and still do do some things. Even today, he's he writes poetry. He does. Uh, does some recording and never gets released because he's he releases it himself and that's a tough thing in this in this day and age. But I think that I think that you know Sharon was a problem, was a curse and a blessing to Ozzy. Yeah, there's no doubt that she takes after her father, who's uh, equally <laughs> legendary uh, yeah. Don Arden, uh, you know, right. manager of the Small Faces and and many other bands and and. Uh, you know, one of the most feared guys in music management yeah. in the 60s and 70s. And, and Sharon is equally feared and respected, um, you know, to this day. Uh, the, the, the grifters behind the failed news site, Aussie.com, uh, learned the hard way that you don't, you don't try to walk on Aussie's trademarks. Uh, well, not- and then the, the, the other stories that you hear about Sharon, some of them were probably not true, but a lot of them are. You know, I, I spoke with uh, Bruce Dickinson and, you know, they uh, toured with uh, OzFest and they had real problems with uh, with Sharon uh, to the point where Sharon hired people to throw eggs at them during one of the shows in Southern California. So, <laughs> yeah, that's that's old school and that very much something she gets from her dad who was not too afraid to, to engage in some hands-on management <laughs> as, as it were so, yeah, hands-on i like that yeah <laughs> so my guest has been mike stark the book is black sabbath and oral history mike thanks so much for coming on and discussing one of the absolutely most pivotal bands in my life um the inventors of heavy metal black sabbath well thanks for having me it's been fun Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Monday, Nate and Ed Legg will be back with more discussion of Michelangelo Matos' book, Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.